Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks so much for coming to On the Road. Um, I want to welcome you here to Kansas City. Um, and I'm glad I know where it is today, because when I told the cab drivers I was riding here, ah, oh, this is my second trip to St. Louis. And <laughs> he kind of looked at me. Um, so anyway, uh, thanks again for coming. I want to start, uh, my name is Ken Torino. I am manager of community engagement and exhibitions at Historic New England. Uh, we are in all six New England states, and we have uh, regional offices uh, throughout New England. And we're a museum of uh, regional history, and you'll hear about one of our sites just very briefly. So I'm going to start with a quote. Uh, Stuart Frost of the V&A Museum, Victorian Albert Museum in London, sums up how museums dealt with queer history when he wrote in uh, Secret Museums in the spring 2008 issue of Museums and Social Sciences. If you don't know that issue, you should really get it. Whole issue is dedicated to LGBTQ history. He wrote, from the 1830s to the 1950s, there is little evidence to suggest that museums were engaged in any meaningful dialogue about sex and sexuality with their audiences. He goes on to say that some museums actually collected material, but very, very few displayed it. So today's session, what we're going to do is talk to you um, about some very specific uh, kinds of uh, exhibitions. Uh, LGBTQ history, I think everyone knows, is, a, is an important, complex, and sometimes unwelcome part of a community's histories. Many museums simply have not interpreted it. Um, we're going to talk a little bit today about how historians have started interpreted, interpreting various hidden histories. And we're going to talk uh, specifically about traveling exhibitions. We're going to give you some tips about getting the exhibitions out on the road. Uh, we're also going to talk about some of the lessons we learned in doing these exhibitions, uh, both uh, positive and negative. And uh, to do that, yeah, uh, we have brought together uh, three speakers here. And I've got their names up there, but I'm going to read their bios just very briefly. Um, our first speaker will be Taylor Bai, who received his Master's of Arts in History which, uh, with an emphasis in public history from the University of Kansas City, Missouri in August 2018. At the um, University of Kansas City, uh, he was a contributing curator to Making History, Kansas City and the Rise of Gay Rights, for which he and his collaborators received the National Council for Public History 2018 Student Project Award. In September, Taylor began a one-year fellowship in public practice and interpretation at the Preservation Society of Newport County and Newport, Rhode Island. And I should say, uh, the, how this session all came about was because of Taylor. I was fortunate to see this exhibition you'll be hearing about when I came to do a workshop in Kansas City last year and was totally, totally blown away from it. So was really delighted about their award and that I could be part of this session. Uh, next, Dylan Little is the community project manager with the Mid-Continental Public Library, where he collaborates with the team to connect thousands of programs and experiences to 30-plus locations across a three-county county service area. Prior to his work with the Mid-Continental Public Library, Dylan has worked in public libraries in a variety of roles, including a stint with the Providence Community Library. 
Um, and our last speaker will be Karen DePaw, who after earning a BA in history and a master's in historic costumes and textile preservation, worked for over 10 years uh, with museum collections and now works with museums of a variety of sizes and budgets throughout the local history services department at Indiana Historical Society. Um, Karen is the author of two uh, publications, The Care and Display of Historic Clothing and The House of Worth, Fashion uh, Sketches 1916 to 1918. At the Indi Indiana Historical Society, she manages the Traveling History uh, Traveling Exhibitions Program and sits on the internal LGBT uh, committee there. So what I'm going to do is just give you a little bit of background on uh, exhibitions and interpreting LGBTQ history at museums. And I'm going to be, try to be very brief about that. Um, it's really been the libraries and archives, and that's why I was so uh, happy to have Dylan with us, that were the leaders. And many of you may know the Stone, Becoming Visible, the legacy of Stonewall. That was at the New York uh, Public Library in 1994. It was a groundbreaking exhibition. Um, and what's so exciting is that next year, there are, I know many organizations that are planning for the 40th uh, anniversary of the celebration of Stonewall. Uh, the other image there, Improper Bostonians, uh, My Neck of the Woods, the History Project in Boston did this book and a traveling exhibition to get the word out on LGBTQ history in 1998. But it's also been the art museums, and some of you may know this exhibition, um, ACT UP New York, which traveled around the country, which dealt with the AIDS crisis. Um, but more of you may even know of this exhibition that I saw at the National Portrait Gallery, the first major exhibition to focus on sexual differences in the making of modern American portraiture. And it considered themes of the role of sexual differences in depicting modern America and how artists explore the fluidity of sexuality and power. And major themes included you know, social margin marginization and how art reflected society's evolving and changing attitudes towards sexuality, desire, and romantic attachment. Even if you didn't see the exhibition, you probably heard about the hubbub that happened when the Smithsonian pulled one of the artworks because members of Congress, who had funded the exhibition, were outraged over the, the exhibition because of David Wanahovitz, I always say his name wrong, video, A Fire in the Belly, and actually, they took the piece out of the exhibition and in a uh, truck in front of the museum, parked in front of the museum, they set up another museum just for that piece and to interpret um, the, really, oppression of taking that piece out of the exhibition. If any of you, um, as I mentioned, it's now going to be the 40th anniversary of Stonewall. What's really encouraging, though, and, and bringing queer history into the mainstream is that historic sites are gaining national recognition. In 1999, the U.S. Department designated 51 and 53 Christopher Street, um, and the street itself and surrounding streets, the site of the Stonewall riots, as a national historic landmark. And if you were at the opening session, well, one other thing, there are a lot more places and communities that are trying to document this history. Uh, this one in New York, it's an initiative to document historic and cultural sites associated with LGBTQ community in the five boroughs. And it's also intended to show the influence LGBT 
LGBTQ history has had on America. Uh, if you were at the uh, keynote speaker, someone mentioned uh, historical markers, uh, and here are just a couple. I was at Independence Hall, and I just happened to notice behind me the marker on the left, which commemorates uh, early demonstrations that took place right there uh, in front of Independence Hall. And the other one uh, for an author, uh, Nathaniel Clifford Barney in Ohio. So LGBTQ history is getting more and more uh, recognition. There are you know, institutions that are devoted just to, uh, in this case, GLBT history here in San Francisco. Um, and it celebrates over 100 years of the city's vast queer past through exhibitions and programming. A lot of temporary exhibitions. Uh, if any of you attended AAM a few years ago um, the, in Seattle, you might have seen this community-generated exhibition. Um, and that was at the Museum of History and Industry in Seattle. And this was created by the museum, collaborated and worked with the LGBTQ community to create this. Um, also, um, in Chicago, out in Chicago, I was just telling Karen there's a really good um, catalog to this if you can get your hands on it. And this looks at the over 150 years, the complex community of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender Chicago's, Chicagoans, and how they survived, struggled, and thrived, often on the edge of mainstream awareness. So the point is, there is more and more being done on this topic. What, um, that's also from the Chicago exhibition. But I'm really encouraged because I'm all for traveling exhibitions. That's part of my job at Historic New England. Um, I'm all for uh, interpreting LGBTQ, LGBTQ history in temporary exhibitions, but also like the Museum of History and Industry in Seattle, more and more museums are incorporating LGBTQ history into their permanent exhibitions. So it's not separated out, uh, which is important to do with these temporary exhibitions. It can go in more depth. But some like this, my partner's from Seattle, so you know he used to go to the lusty lady and was telling me all sorts of stories. So you know, but it's part of the permanent exhibitions, and I think that that's really, really important. Um, also. Um, in England, there's a lot of work being done. I love that cover. This is the guidebook that shed lights on the LGBTQ community uh, and the heritage of the National Trust of England. And it's about the people and places. So they have made an effort to go out and look at and reinterpret their sites that deal with LGBTQ history. Those were stories that in the past were hidden, were not told. This is a guidebook you could buy. And it's not just about the sites, but it's also about the founders of the, the museum, many of which who were LD, LGBTQ. Uh, very, very interesting. I work for historic sites and a lot of work going on in our, our field right now. Uh, this is a museum uh, that's in historic New England's portfolio. Uh, belonged to this guy, one of America's earliest uh, uh, interior decorators. There are 47 rooms, each decorated with a different theme overlooking Gloucester Harbor. We, about 10 years ago, started interpreting the fact that he was a gay man. And you know, 10 years ago in the historic house field, that was, you know, uh, cutting edge. And that was basically all we did. Now we're ramping up the interpretation and doing more with programming. Uh, another site which just got a internal grant from the state of Wisconsin is this. And they are now, finally, interpreting this site 
in uh, Wisconsin that was built by Cornish miners who came over to Wisconsin uh, with the life partners, Robert Neal and Edgar Hilliam, um, shown on the bottom right there. And IMLS just gave this site a grant to interpret uh, the Frederick Palmer and his partner, Howard Metzger's house here in Connecticut. So this is coming online. I'm going to be part of the team that's working on that. And uh, lastly, if you don't know this resource, and probably everyone here does, you should know it. Um, this that came out of the uh, Park Service um, is a great resource. It gives broad, the broad social history of the LGBTQ history and also a lot of tips in terms of programming and so on and so on. So are you all familiar with this? Okay, good, excellent. So with that, that's kind of putting in perspective what's been happening um, and what I've been working with and writing about for a number of years with LGBTQ interpretation at museums. Now we're gonna go on and hear from Taylor about uh, his project and his collaborators. One sec, I'll get everything changed over here. All right. Thank you, Ken, uh, for that introduction, and uh, thank you to Dylan and Karen for uh, agreeing to join me on this idea to have a session here today. And thank you to all of you in the audience for joining with us in this beautiful morning here in Kansas City. So I'm going to be the first of two presenters uh, talking about kind of two different ends of the same project, that project being uh, the traveling exhibit, Making History, Kansas City and the Rise of Gay Rights. Now, Making History was produced in the fall of 2016 by University of Missouri Kansas City Public History students under the guidance and leadership of now former UMKC professor Christopher Cantwell. I was a contributing curator on this project and that was my first semester uh, in the master's program at UMKC. So what I'm gonna do today is introduce the exhibit uh, and its subject matter and then also talk about how we orchestrated this project as what we like to call an act of allyship between public historians and the LGBTQ community in Kansas City. And I'll talk a little more about what uh, that idea of allyship means later in my presentation. So in February 1966, uh, just mere yards from where we're standing and sitting today, some 40 members of gay rights groups from across the country came together in Kansas City for the National Planning Conference of Homophile Organizations. Now this was the first time that queer rights advocates had held a national meeting like this. And out of this meeting, they created the North American Conference of Homophile Organizations, also known as NACO. So this term, homophile organizations, may be unfamiliar to many of you. But what's important to know is that they were an early and crucial evolutionary phase in the LGBTQ rights movement, beginning in the years uh, immediately following World War I until about, or World War II, excuse me, uh, to about the late 1960s. And under the banner of homophile organizations, LGBTQ individuals in the US began to make some of the first important strides in fighting discrimination. 
Now, homophile organizations are a little different from the later uh, gay liberation movement in that they pursued what you might call a more um, accommodationist approach. And NACO was the first attempt uh, at a nationwide movement or organization to do this kind of work to fight discrimination. So NACO was only around for a few years. But during that time, Kansas City really served as a crucial nerve center for NACO. In addition to hosting the planning meeting in 1966, Kansas City also hosted a subsequent national meeting of the organization. And just as importantly, a local group, the Phoenix Society for Individual Freedom, stepped up to serve as a publishing and printing clearinghouse for distributing uh, educational and activist literature on a nationwide basis. So I think that this story of NACO and Kansas City speaks uh, really well to the theme of this conference. If you ask most Americans where the gay rights movement began, they would probably uh, affix it at the Stonewall riots in New York in 1969. But what we try to do in the exhibit is tell a truer story and, uh, and tell the complex story of how the gay rights movement evolved from uh, the years after World War II up until the uh, Stonewall riots in 1969. Similarly, most Americans probably wouldn't uh, figure that Kansas City would be a place where such an important chapter in the LGBTQ rights movement unfolded. But here again, uh, a truer story is that the history of the LGBTQ community in Kansas City is really rich and really robust. To give just one example, one of the reasons that Kansas City was selected as the site of the NACO meeting is that Kansas City already had a really robust and really vibrant social scene orbiting around a large number of gay bars as well as a slew of nationally popular female impersonators. And so this story is intertwined among other aspects of Kansas City's history, including its reputation as a wide open town, which you're probably gonna hear a lot of in the next couple of days. So to tell this story, we in the exhibit, we interpret uh, the story of NACO in the 1966 meeting, and we place it in national and local context. So the exhibit consists of 12 panels, and in addition to showing Kansas City's importance, we really sought to help un audiences understand the evolution of the gay rights movement. Now the exhibit opened at AOMKC in April of 2017, and another underlying theme of the exhibit is right there in its title. The idea that history is made by many hands in many places, from the ordinary men and women whose stories are told in the exhibit, uh, to our role uh, as historians. In this top photo, I'm pictured with uh, my classmates who worked on the project and Dr. Cantwell. And on to anyone who may be inspired by what they see. Now, we had some reservations initially about how the exhibit would be received, but we've really been thrilled uh, with the positive reaction that we've gotten everywhere the, visit, the exhibit has traveled to. So we've tra the exhibit has traveled to a number of different venues, including public libraries, museums, um, and what's the other word I'm looking for? Uh, universities. And so here it's pictured also, it was at the uh, Missouri Humanities Council in Kansas City this past February. So what I, we also launched an online version in October uh, of 2017, and that sort of further broadens the, uh, 
the range and the reach of the exhibit. So I want to start with just some practical lessons and things that we learned in the process of making, uh, making history. Our exhibit was funded in large part by a grant from the Freedom's Frontier National Heritage Area. And traditionally, Freedom's Frontier has focused on the story of the frontier and Civil War eras and later civil rights movement in western Missouri and eastern Kansas. And so for them to broaden their definition of the enduring struggle for freedom to include gender and sexuality, well, that was kind of a new step for them. Now, two important events working in our favor were, as Ken mentioned earlier, the establishment of uh, Stonewall as a site of national memory and a national landmark, as well as the publication of the National Park Service LGBT theme study. And so the point of this, I think, is that we're in a time of great growth uh, and new developments, both within the field of LGBTQ history, as well as, uh, as, well as LGBTQ issues um, at sort of the national level in all aspects of American life. And I think that one of the outcomes of this is going to be more and more opportunities for new collaborations and new partnerships that we may not be able to foresee right now. So another takeaway comes from, or two takeaways really, come from the uh, sort of curatorial side of things. So from a material standpoint, part of our success, I think, has been that we used a really sort of simple uh, recipe. We, the exhibit is printed on sort of standard sort of 30 by 80 uh, freestanding banners, and those have proven really durable, easy to set up, easy to move, um, store, and manage. And I think that that is uh, beneficial for any traveling exhibit. Another factor for us was we chose not to include any artifacts with the exhibit, and one side of that is that it further simplified managing and storing or uh, management and uh, transport of the exhibit, but it also had another more surprising benefit, which is that it really encouraged our host venues to be creative in how they incorporate the exhibit into their programming, whether by creating new programs of their own, uh, bringing in speakers, or incorporating artifacts from their own collections. Now, one thing I think we could have improved on and one thing we would have liked to have done differently is perhaps have had uh, a different format for the exhibit, perhaps a wall-mounted version. Now the reason for this is we had a number of LGBTQ community centers who were interested in hosting the exhibit but weren't able to, uh, to have the floor space to host. So for all their sort of simplicity and, uh, and durability and usefulness, the freestanding banners that we have, a 12-panel exhibit does take up a fair amount of floor space. And I think that speaks to when considering a traveling exhibit on LGBTQ history, it's helpful to, th uh, it's important to understand that you may find the venues that are interested in hosting exhibit may come from a lot of different areas, may not quite be the pool of venues that you're used to if you're considering a project like this. So with the rest of my time, I want to talk about this idea of allyship. Now, full credit for this idea goes to Dr. Cantwell uh, for adapting a term that's become fairly common in the work of anti-oppression activists and figuring out how to apply it to our work as public historians. Allyship, in a nutshell, means how those with privilege can best advocate for those who face systemic discrimination. And it's similar to a concept many of you are probably already familiar with, which is the idea of shared authority. 
it's an important, uh, important idea in all public history. Um, but allyship, as we think of it, takes these ideas of shared authority further in a few respects. So what I have here are just a couple examples of allyship in action in making history. So the first way we implemented allyship is in our relationship with local uh, community-driven LGBTQ history-making initiatives. So the first uh, important institution I want to talk about is the Gay and Lesbian Archive of Mid-America, or GLAMA for short, which is a which is uh, housed at UMKC Special Collections and has really been driven by nurturing relationships with the community uh, and to build what has really become an amazing collection. So most of Glamour collections were where most of the, our materials for the exhibit came from. And I like to think of our role with Glamour as sort of completing a circle. Uh, as we sort of formed another, uh, helped complete the circle from the LGBTQ community and Glamour, and then by us taking the materials in Glamour and repackaging it, we connect them with the public. And then to complete the circle further, we also encouraged uh, people who viewed the exhibit to donate to Glamour if they had collections that we thought, or that they thought would be valuable. And so in doing that, we really tried to be sort of transparent about this idea of making history, that the collections that you have are valuable and, uh, and can be important to telling truer stories about uh, a complex issue like LGBTQ history. So the other community initiative I want to talk about is a community group called LGBTKC, which was formed by a mix of local activists, scholars, and city officials who came together for the express purpose of installing a historical marker to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the NACO meeting, as well as the life of Drew Schaefer, who is leader of the Phoenix Society for Individual Freedom. Now that marker was unveiled in October 2016. It's right across uh, Barney Alice Plaza from where we are now. I encourage everyone to go see it. And we really tried to see our work as building on the story that LGBTKC was trying to tell. We involved them in the process early on. We submitted our panels to their leadership for critiques prior to the final drafts, and really saw our role as, again, sort of building on the work that they were already doing. So a second way that we served as allies is in how we approached the interpretation of the materials itself. And this one is pretty personal to me because, so on the left there is a uh, it's probably too small and you can't really see it, but that's the panel that I contributed to the exhibit. And my panel focused on this, uh, this aspect of Kansas City's LGBT history that I mentioned earlier, the importance of the city's robust community of gay bars. And two of the really fascinating collections are collections of photos that were taken uh, at area gay bars, some candid, some staged, between uh, the late 1940s and 1970s. And so I've inflated through them here and interpreting these was a real challenge for me because I ran into uh, really clearly the limits both of my experience as a scholar and also as a person. Um, for me as a straight white man, it felt pretty inappropriate quite honestly to say very much about what was going on in these photos. You know, nothing in my scholarly experience or uh, 
or personal life had prepared me to be able to interpret either the emotions or the, um, or the, uh, the sort of atmosphere of these photos. But at the same time, they're really powerful. They remind me of Facebook photos. They're very human, very intimate. And so ultimately, I presented them with a pretty minimal uh, interpretation, really just trying to let them speak for themselves. In a similar vein, most of what we know about gay bars in Kansas City really comes from recollections that were uh, left to Glamour by members of the LGBTQ community. These are people who valued these places, people who spent uh, important parts of their lives here. And so we really tried to let their voices speak the loudest. And I think I can speak for my fellow uh, curators on this project when I say that we tried to do this in all of the panels. And that idea of voice is really crucial. Anyone who's worked on an exhibit knows. And I think that one of the things that allyship and inclusiveness means to me is letting other voices speak. And as was said in the uh, keynote this morning, we as, as museums and as historic sites have a ton of authority. Um, and to the extent that we can lend that authority to the LGBTQ community by letting them speak through us, then we can help them in their struggles. So to sum up, I've got kind of three what I think of as big picture considerations if you're considering a project, whether it's a traveling exhibit or not, around LGBTQ history. Uh, and you might be able to apply these to any marginalized community. So this first one is really just considering the sort of both the history and the current state of your institution's relationship with the LGBTQ community and considering the anticipated and unanticipated ways your involvement may impact them. The second one really speaks to how we frame the project as a whole, you know, framing ourselves as a resource for them in their own struggle to tell their story and to tell their history. And this third one really comes from, again, our relationship with uh, existing initiatives in the LGBTQ community. And so I'm going to take a stab at a sort of analogy to sum this up. Um, I did improvisational theater in high school. And if you've done improv, you may have heard there's this idea called yes and. And it's all about how you build a scene. So the idea behind yes and is that the scene doesn't begin or end with you. You know, your job as an actor is to take what your other actors have given you, accept it, build upon it to the best of your abilities, and then make sure that the scene continues and pass it forward to, uh, to your fellow actors. And I think that that idea sort of sums up, uh, for me at least, sums up what I mean when I talk about allyship. You know, to me, the idea of yes and, it really encapsulates allyship as a way of navigating really important issues, like who LGBTQ history belongs to and the power dynamics inherent in its telling. Now, as a last point, I do want to emphasize that even though I'm the one up here speaking today, making history like all exhibits was uh, a team effort. And I do want to say a huge thank you to everyone who I worked with on this project. I'm really grateful to have been a part of it. Um, and again, thank you to all of you for coming here today. We will have Q&A after this. Uh, and if you want to know more about our project, the URL is just there. So ask questions and uh, enjoy the rest of our presenters. Thank you.
Good morning. How's everyone doing? While Taylor gets that ready, I'm so glad that he mentioned uh, the customizable, easy-to-carry aspects of the display. Um, you know, the eloquent introduction of uh, my bio, my work with the public library here in the Kansas City area. But one of the big things we do in terms of uh, landing programs and events at our public libraries is, is reverse engineering. So um, super practical matters are usually at the forefront of our thoughts. So um, conversations, when I got into library programming, I never thought the importance of knowing where the bathrooms were at or where the trash liners were would be so central to uh, developing great experiences. But really, I'm hoping that I can kind of give a brick and mortar explanation or brick and mortar walkthrough of connecting uh, communities uh, with other communities through library spaces. So um, I, I can't really talk about the Mid-Continent Public Library without kind of talking a little bit about our, our service area and the communities that uh, we serve. So we are, uh, uh, cover three counties in the Kansas City area. We're about 70 miles from north to south. Uh, we have 31 locations across those three counties and we serve communities ranging in size from 1,000 in northern Platte County um, to uh, branches in uh, the Kansas City area where you know, we're in the middle of uh, Kansas City activities, thoroughfares, and everything in between. So one of the things I really enjoy about being a part of uh, the Mid-Continent Public Library, but more specifically being a part of programming at the library is by uh, having a chance to vet presenters or performers, or in this case, uh, connect our audiences with uh, displays and uh, passive programming opportunities. Uh, I get the distinct privilege of getting to see a, uh, you know, a puppet performer um, just kill it in one of our uh, rural communities and then uh, the next day we'll have them in one of our large suburban branches and that uh, that continuity that commonality across our communities in terms of providing access to experiences really kind of the the public library DNA that not only was the foundation for connecting with making history but uh, really an important part of uh, why we moved ahead and we're thrilled to be uh, uh, able to connect with making history and to be able to connect with GLAMA in that capacity. Um, really, if I have to go back to the origin myth of connecting the Mid-Continent Public Library with making history, um, there was like a five-minute phone call with Stuart Hines from GLAMA, and he, he talked a little bit about the, the emphasis and the scope of this project, and then when he uh, bottom line to talk about the fact that it was uh, a display of certain dimension and certain sizes. I think it was really like a five or seven minute phone call that led to a real three month tour in the summer of 2017 connecting with our uh, three of our branches. Um, having the privilege of living and working in the Kansas City area, uh, you know, a community partner like GLAMA, like UMKC, I think that there's really like a zen or nirvana state where public libraries have a chance to connect communities with communities. Uh, having uh, uh, partnerships with UMKC and GLAMA in, in the past, um, that box was checked almost immediately. 
and then having a chance to uh, look at a few PDF drafts of the earlier iterations of Making History, it was just, it was just gorgeous. It looked great. Um, and so it, it was really one of the easier conversations uh, I think I've ever had in terms of uh, vetting a connection between uh, uh, communities. Um, the, the timing of it was fantastic as well, where uh, it seems almost eons ago, summer 2017, but uh, for a number of reasons. But um, really, we are right about to start a large uh, building renovation uh, project as a library system. And so our whole world was uh, about to you know, have uh, a variety of changes uh, impact the way we provide library services. So connecting early 2017, I think it was January, February, we had the talk with uh, Stuart, and then we were able to hit the ground running in summer 2017. Um, I, this, again, you know, when I talk about the importance of bathrooms and parking lots, um, when it comes to public library programming, Honestly, like one of the last boxes to check, I have a, a, I don't know how this happened, but all of my programming teammates, we all drive smaller Toyotas. <laughs> and uh, a, a teammate of mine had this Toyota Corolla and she was able to uh, take down the display and pack it into the Corolla. And I'm like, all right, we've got something here. We can really, we can really take the, the show on, on the road. Um, and when we talk about uh, I mentioned the you know we have we serve a variety of communities we also have a variety of spaces so that ability to uh, customize uh, the placement of a display to make it work for that that particular location and that particular uh, community is certainly at a premium so uh, we were thrilled to be uh, in, invited to uh, collaborate with this project and we were thrilled that it would fit inside of a Toyota Corolla. Um, I mentioned uh, the, the importance of, of timing with connecting on this uh, partnership, but uh, it, we were able to line up logistics for the summer of 2017, which any public library veteran knows that the summer is kind of like a, a rolling three-month Super Bowl of literacy. I, I don't know um, what if there's not really a good thumbnail besides that, but um, in terms of uh, peak turnout, in terms of the number of people who visit our spaces, in terms of the the value of indoor places with AC, uh, there's just a number of indicators that uh, make uh, public libraries as a general rule a happening place in the summertime. Um, so. I don't know if we would have been able to connect as many, uh, you know, people or, or customers or patrons with this uh, display if it hadn't been for the importance of the timing aspect. So the the, the first stop was our our Woodneath Library Center. How many people are familiar with the Kansas City area? Oh, wait, we got we got some hands. Um, so the. The, the first stop was our Woodneath Library Center, which is um, in the heart of the library school district in a largely residential area. Um, the placement of the, the Making History display, um, if you're familiar with the, with the branch, you 
there's a large concourse that connects kind of the core services area of the location with a larger programming space. If you want to go to a program, if you want to go get a cup of coffee at our coffee shop, you have to go through that concourse. Um, the, the door count for the month of May was about 20,000, and of that 20,000, 4,000 uh, visited uh, programs in that time. One of my big takeaways is we've got to develop more effective metrics for capturing engagement with uh, static displays, but I think that the, the sheer volume of, of people through the door and knowing the location of the programming space at Woodneath, uh, the 4,000 program attendees, there's a good chance that uh, the number of people engaging with the display was far north of that. Um, but I love the placement of the display there where there's, uh, in terms of like the aesthetic quality, um, you know, the, mentioned the practical uh, aspects, but it, the, the light kind of filters in and you really can't go through the front door and you can't really uh, go anywhere uh, throughout the building without being awestruck or you know, gobsmacked by the overall brilliance of uh, the display that's there. And so it, it makes a great space for a variety of displays, but uh, no more so than making history. Um, our, our second location in, in June of that year was at uh, our North Independence location. Um, the North Independence location is really just across 24 Highway from the, the Truman Library. Um, th that location is, it's, it's really a, a major thoroughfare in terms of uh, automobile and pedestrian traffic. Um, the, the, there's a major bus line that runs east to west connecting Independence with uh, Kansas City. Um, there's also a large uh, high school, I, I don't know, maybe a couple football tosses away from the public library. And so what was interesting about uh, North Independence as a, as a hosting site is that, um, and I guess this ties back into timing, you know, as our communities change, our public libraries could and should evolve, and one of the ways that they've evolved is that Whereas maybe public libraries 10 to 15 years ago, uh, there was a, the heart of things was a, a transactional model where you go to the shelves, you pick up your, your titles, you check them out, and you, you go on about your day with the, the variety of factors. People are spending more and more time at our spaces and having um, uh, a branch where pedestrian traffic was was higher than at the previous location. R really, the, the dynamics there uh, set themselves up really nicely for uh, you know deeper engagement with the, the content at hand. Really, in terms of the size, it's pretty comparable to the Woodneath uh, Library Center. And actually, in terms of customer visits, it's fairly comparable. But the, the anecdotal uh, evidence or and knowing the way that that uh, display was situated where with uh, the Woodneath location you could basically take a right and go check out your your library holds or check out some of the the most read authors with a North Independence location 
there's really just one front entrance and the way that we were able to uh, connect with Jim Casey to line it up around the front entrance uh, prime real estate within that branch to engage with as many people as as possible um, so the the third the third site um, both North Independence and, and Woodneath are um, probably our, our largest branches at that time in terms of of space, but um, that the value of the customizable features or the size and the Corolla ability of the display was demonstrated most thoroughly at our Redbridge location. Um, our Redbridge location is in the uh, at the heart of a shopping center, and uh, really, like there was a little bit more creativity with making that display work, but. Um, I, some of the, the best anecdotal feedback we got was at Redbridge where there's a certain amount of intimacy where you have uh, X number of panels in a space where that takes up a much larger chunk of the pie in terms of square footage. Um, I, I'd love to answer any questions both when we do the Q&A, but if anyone has any questions about some of the practical applications of the display, like I said earlier, we'd love to uh, continue to connect with Glamour with future displays in any way that we possibly can. And um, we would love to uh, kind of mind meld with uh, museums and archives to figure out the best way to develop better feedback systems or even interactivity uh, capacities with similar displays in the future. But yeah, was thrilled when Stuart called me and I'm thrilled to be here now. Thanks. Get all situated up here. Yeah. <laughs> so really briefly, while things get set up, um, I did bring some swag because we all love swag and because we made like 15,000 of these buttons. <laughs> so please take one for you, take one for your friends. Um, we made, when we launched the, our traveling exhibit, we launched it at the Indianapolis Pride Festival in, I believe it was 2015. Um, and we made Pride in History pins. So if you're interested, there's some in the back. Um, so... I am here to speak about a traveling exhibit that we did at the Indiana Historical Society called A Visual Journey um, from AIDS to Marriage Equality. And some of the, primarily I wanted to focus on kind of the lessons that we learned in how we did this, how it was, um, how it's kind of happened to be incorporated into the organizations that use our traveling exhibits, et cetera. So um, this is our logo, Pride in History. It's on the pins. <laughs> So this is kind of what we came up with as our little tagline for our LGBT collecting initiative, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, IHS really wanted to kind of go at this idea that we are not your grandma's historical society, that we do fun and interesting things, that we try to push the envelope in ways that we're able. Um, and so we kind of came out with this idea of doing these collecting initiatives where we focused on a particular group that wasn't well represented in our historical archives. So currently, the one that we're kind of all in on that's a little more brand new is our Latino Collecting Initiative. Um, the LGBT Collecting Initiative was our first one. Our next upcoming one is an Asian Collecting Initiative. Um, so we're really kind of trying to make this push that we are more than 
what we were in 1830 when we were founded. Um, So one of the things that I kind of wanted to say here at the beginning to kind of set up what I'm going to talk about is that I come at this traveling exhibit that we did in kind of three very different ways. Um, On one hand, I am the coordinator of local history services, which means that I coordinate all of our traveling exhibits that go out into the communities across Indiana. So I have that very intimate understanding of our organizations that borrow them, why they borrow them, how they use them, etc. But I am also a member of the Indiana LGBT community. Um, At that same time, however, I am a recent member of that community in that up until about three years ago, I lived in Connecticut. Um, So I don't know much about the history of the LGBT community in Indiana. Um, To be perfectly honest, my wife and I always joke that we're the worst members of that community because we're like, we just want to stay home and watch like Netflix. (laughs) Like, I can't tell you a single gay bar in Indianapolis. (laughs) I can't tell you very many straight bars in Indianapolis. Um, So it's been, it was a very interesting kind of experience to move to Indiana, be involved in this exhibition, and be able to come at it from all these ways when when I was asked to talk about kind of what we learned. Um, So remember those three perspectives as we continue. So... Just a little bit of brief introduction to our Traveling Exhibits program. It is housed under our Local History Services Department, which is a field services office. Um, If you're not familiar with what that is, it basically means that our entire purpose, there's four of us in our department, our purpose is to go out and assist local history organizations with what they need. We actually don't do all that much work inside the building in downtown Indianapolis. We are that outward-facing portion of Um, of the Indiana Historical Society. So the traveling exhibit program in particular is kind of meant to, one, expand IHS's reaches beyond their walls in downtown Indianapolis, because surprisingly, not a whole bunch of people in South Bend, Indiana, want to drive three and a half hours to come to our museum. We hope they do. We wish they would. But reality is reality. Most of us don't like to go very far than half an hour from our own back door. Another was to provide a much needed service to local organizations, to provide them with exhibits that would give them kind of the broader context of things that they were talking about locally. So for instance, we have a World War I exhibit that what we find is a lot of people borrow it and it talks about the general history of the state of Indiana during World War I and they add to it the personal stories, the stories about the soldier from Johnson County who was in World War I, and they use it to supplement their own history. Um, And the other piece was actually a little more (laughs) self-serving in that we use our traveling exhibits as a low barrier way to introduce the other services that local history services has, like consultations and site visits and workshops to the people who would use our services. So to the libraries with history collections, to the museums, the local historical societies, et cetera. So that's sort of the threefold purpose of the traveling exhibit program. 
Um, just as some quick numbers, last year in 2017, we traveled 25,000 miles around the state. Um, that was doing all of our services, so that includes workshops and things, but most of that is done as traveling exhibit time in the summer, so we're wrapping it up, thank goodness. I'll get to be in the office a little bit. <laughs> um, and last year, we had just over half a million people see our traveling exhibits. We have about 16 that go out around the state. So just to give you a background of that sort of piece of the puzzle. And the second piece of background you need is just a little bit about the LGBT collecting initiative. Um, like I said, it's part of kind of a series of collecting initiatives that we're doing. Um, the LGBT collecting initiative began in 2014 um, with phase one, which was just a basic, let's set up an advisory committee, let's start collecting some oral histories, um, and we began processing a large collection of photographs by a local photographer named Mark A. Lee, um, who photographed and was part of the LG, well, he still is, <laughs> part of the LGBT community in Indianapolis um, from the 80s all the way through today. So the collection really spans um, and runs the gamut of what it includes. So phase two kind of started out in 2015. It's when we actually created the visual journey um, from AIDS to Marriage Equality exhibit in-house, and then we turned it into a traveling exhibit, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a minute. Um, and then phase three was kind of launched in 2016, where we really started to establish a statewide outreach to kind of go get oral histories. We had started in central Indiana um, to kind of get our feet wet and get things figured out. Um, and then we kind of expanded out. At the moment, we have think around 60 oral history interviews. Um, our aim had been 50 to 75, and we are on our way because we're not done yet. Um, and sort of the idea is that this collecting initiative will never be done. It's not like we've stopped it in order to start the Latino collecting initiative, but we wanted to give each initiative a moment to kind of get their feet going and get used to what it was doing and become kind of that piece that lets other people know that we're here and we want your history. So this is our visual journey from AIDS to Marriage Equality exhibit. The photograph that you see up on the top left is actually the exhibit in its original form. This was started as an exhibit in our fourth floor gallery space, which in the design of the building um, is basically an exhibit space that we use for flat exhibits. It's really only wall space. There's a few spots where the floor is a little wider that we can put some exhibit cases, but it's primarily a visual um, photograph exhibit space for us. So we used a ton of Mark's photographs in this exhibit to tell the story of the history of LGBT individuals in Indiana. Um, what we did then is we actually took that fourth floor traveling exhibit and turned it directly into a traveling exhibit. So you see those pictures at the bottom? We went the route of um, magnetic frames that were made in-house, and then we had these panels printed outside of house with the content and the photographs that we had determined, um, which lets us kind of put them in any format that we wish. So there's actually 16 panels that are, I think they're seven feet high by two feet wide. They do not fit in the back of a sedan. We have a company cargo van. 
Um, but they travel pretty easy and they're pretty light. So that was something that we wanted. We wanted this exhibit format is one that we've used in the past. And for us, it works really well because it is super flexible. So we have places that we go to where we're trying to cram this exhibit into a small house museum that is not going to move their giant four-poster bed so that they can fit your exhibit. So we have to be able to really work around things. So the things that I want to talk about are lessons that really, in some ways, we've learned with all of our traveling exhibits that we've done that have kind of been taken from a format that was done at IHS first and then created into something to go out and about. Um, so they're not, there are some things that are particular to the LGBT exhibit and there are other things that are a little bit broader. Um, so these are also kind of things to think about if you're considering taking an exhibit. If someone's come in and said, hey, that was a fabulous exhibit, can you travel it? Things to think about as you make that decision and things that maybe need to change a little bit or be adjusted when you make those shifts. So when we decided to make this traveling exhibit, which was always in the back of our head, we always wanted this initiative to kind of come out with a traveling exhibit that could go everywhere. Um, so when we started doing this, we worked with Mark Lee to determine which photos and what information he wanted to include. He was our guest curator on the exhibit. Um, what information he wanted to include in that fourth floor exhibit. We did do some sponsorships um, for the traveling exhibit. Our traveling exhibits, we generally tend to estimate they're about $15,000, um, and that's research, content development, all of those bits and pieces. Um, so we sought that, and we actually got about $10,000 from two different funders, from Eli Lilly and Company, and then from Cummins. So they were sponsors of the exhibit, and then IHS kind of came in with that third part. Um, and we also did, as I mentioned, we created the um, magnetic frames in-house, had the panels printed out of house, and also did all the content development and design in-house based on that fourth floor exhibit. So here's what we learned, the meat. Um, <laughs> I kind of broke this out into two main sections. First, the things that we learned about our borrowing organizations. If you remember from a couple slides ago, as I mentioned, the ideas that traveling exhibits are a low barrier entrance into small historical community or historical um, museums in communities around Indiana. What we found with this traveling exhibit was actually that its appeal was to a different audience, which was great for us in many ways because it got a new audience to us. What we found is a lot of the traveling exhibit bookings for this particular exhibit were from universities, from their LGBT organizations who wanted to display this. Um, they were from larger libraries in metro areas that were not places that we were used to kind of driving and taking stuff to. So those were all really nice things. Um, the other side of that, however, was that although, as kind of as Ken mentioned earlier, although LGBT history is, thank goodness, getting lower and lower on the list of things that most museums see as difficult to talk about, it is still difficult in many small rural communities. So our usual audience, um, as <laughs> it was kind of interesting the first time this happened because it was difficult as both someone who just loves our traveling exhibit program and wants them all to go everywhere and never be in the building ever, um, but also 
personally, the first time I had a phone call and someone asked me, well, what are your new traveling exhibits? And I pitched them the LGBT traveling exhibit. And their response was, our organization and our community are just not ready. So there's still that issue. And some of that is, you know, this particular organization that I was having this conversation about, I've been to lunch with the person I was talking with on the phone. They know I have a wife. It was not an issue with the individual I was talking with, their executive director. It was more had to do with a conversation with their broader community, smaller organizations that we work with a lot in Indiana, we tend to see are not as, they're not as ready or have the tools necessarily to have that difficult preparation with their audience because a traveling exhibit is sort of an unexpected audience. The audience that was coming to Indiana Historical Society is used to being faced with some more difficult topics. We do them all the time. Going up to the fourth floor and being faced with a bunch of pictures of the LGBT community was not surprising to them. But if you put it in your local small town library, where most of those people are coming for the library and they happen to see this exhibit, that's a bit of a different preparation of your audience. Um, so what we were getting was actually more, it was those difficult conversations with their boards that they weren't ready to have to back up an exhibit that they wanted to do as opposed to saying, we want to have this exhibit on World War I and the board saying, okay. <laughs> so that has been sort of a constant, um, just a constant in our discussions about this exhibit and really getting it to our normal audience although it is taking off with this brand new one that's introducing this new audience to us as local history services. Um, another thing that we did was once we kind of started realizing that maybe this exhibit was not going to initially be launched in the same way that our other ones are, which is just it goes on our website and word of mouth gets it out, um, we actually decided to do a very targeted marketing so we created a letter that introduced the exhibit and we actually sent it to larger libraries and universities. Once we realized that maybe initially, while it's kind of becoming known and its content is becoming known, those were maybe the first places to send it. So we did a targeted marketing. That got us a full year and a half worth of constant bookings. We were picking it up from one place and dropping it off at another in the same span of time. Um, we also decided that this would be the first exhibit that we took the entire PDF of content that was sent to the designer and we, or to the printer rather, and we took that and we put it on the web. So if you go to the traveling exhibits tab about the LGBT history exhibit, you will see all of the content. So we kind of wanted to eliminate any of that question of what am I gonna get, what am I gonna see, what kind of discussions am I maybe going to have to have with my community about this exhibit. So we wanted to make it as easy for any organization that maybe wanted to go there as possible. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about was this change of audience. Um, and this is something that we deal with with a lot of our traveling exhibits, is that when people come into IHS, like I mentioned, they kind of know what to expect. A lot of times they're coming there because they've seen the part the marketing that we've done about the exhibits that are there. They're coming to see those specific things. Whereas in smaller museums, in smaller communities, um, you know, you might have seen the press release that we send them out that has that there's a traveling exhibit there with a little blurb about it. If you're going to a library though, a lot of times you just kind of walk in and are met with this exhibit. Um, 
So it was a little bit different audience for that traveling exhibit. Another thing that was a little bit different was in the context of the Indiana Historical Society's site in downtown Indianapolis, we were really telling a history of the LGBT community in Indiana to the LGBT community in Indiana. So their contextual knowledge that they brought to the exhibit was very different than the contextual knowledge being brought by people from outside of that community who were now the recipients of this exhibit. So we kind of flipped it, and when we did the traveling exhibit portion, suddenly the audience was an audience of people who were not from the community, who were looking at an exhibit where they had no context that wasn't provided. So there were some things that we learned about how to shift that context and what we needed to shift because this exhibit was kind of taken from one and developed into another. Um, these are things that it really didn't click <laughs> until after it had gone out and we'd read it and we'd gotten questions and things like that of realizing that there was inadvertent context missing. Um, for instance, there were language barriers in the sense that there are things that were unexplained, where to the community they knew it, but outside of it they did not. So for instance, one of the panels, um, when I was reading over it when it was up on the fourth floor, there was a panel that talked about HJR3 and how important it was to the Indiana LGBT community. I had been living in Indiana for about six months <laughs> when I read that panel and I had no idea what HR or A, yeah, I wrote it down because I don't remember the acronym. HJR3 was. I had to Google it. And when I did, I found out that it was the House Joint Resolution Bill 3, which was the proposed ban on gay marriage, essentially, in the state's constitution because they wanted to change the state's constitution to de define marriage as between a man and a woman. That's really important. So if you don't understand what that acronym stands for, you've missed the importance of the story on that panel. So those were the kind of little things that when we pulled these stories out, it made a difference. Um, another piece of that was that our fourth floor is a lot bigger than 16 panels worth of traveling exhibit information. So one of the things that we found was that we had to take Mark's amazing breadth of collection and narrow it down to fit it into the fourth floor exhibit. But then when we did the traveling exhibit, we had to narrow it further. So inadvertently, one of the things that happened, that happens sometimes with our traveling exhibits, is that after that, once you get far enough removed from reading kind of the original content from the fourth floor, you start to realize that there are pieces of the story that are maybe not as well represented. The fourth floor exhibit had a ton about the lesbian and bisexual individuals in Indiana. The traveling exhibit, the focus was a little bit more on the bag ladies, who are a great organization in Indianapolis that raise money for um, AIDS and for the LGBT community. It talks a lot about the marriage equality piece and that fight um, against RIFRA, the, freedom, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that happened in Indiana. By the way, two months after I accepted my job, and suddenly my wife and I were like, what did we do? <laughs> so luckily, IHS is super friendly, um, <laughs> which is very exciting. Um, so anyways, those kinds of things were coming up. So we had that context. And those stories are involved in the traveling exhibit. But once you remove the rest of the context, it actually became more apparent that, oh, no, we only have 
one panel on transgender history in this exhibit. In the traveling exhibit, there are not, just because of the individual images that we picked up on that we chose to represent here, we found that they were not as inclusive. Um, so those are just kind of a couple of the things that I encourage you if you're doing traveling exhibits, if you're taking an exhibit and turning it into something new, um, to really kind of focus in on and think about. So then this is our, our new logo that we came out with, which is We Do History, and we kind of can put whatever we want in there. So for our LGBT stuff we do, we do everyone's history. Um, so yeah, I think that's it for me. And questions. So we have some time for questions. Yeah, I think we uh, have speakers? a few minutes. Do we have a mic for question people? I was told there would be a mic. <laughs> You'll just have to speak out. <laughs> well, we are being recorded, so. Um, sure, uh, we'll repeat it. Did you, um, uh, did, did you apply the allyship, or do you see an application of the allyship idea to um, encouraging smaller communities in Indiana to um, accept the exhibit you know, in terms of working with allies and, and kind of developing it, if that makes sense? All right, so the question is, um, the idea of allyship, I think you're referring to kind of what I talked about, is whether uh, Karen and IHS kind of thinks that that applies to their own work. It's not something that we've really thought about. However, I will say you've given me a great idea. Um, in that, I think it would be very possible for us to kind of come up with some sort of not just an information packet, but kind of a, a piece that would go to the museum to say, here's how to have some of those conversations, or here's what to expect. Um, I think in some ways in Indiana, we're still at the stage where there are small communities who are still recognizing that there are LGBTQ people in their community that just because, that they don't all live in Indianapolis. Um, so I think there is a definite initial barrier of just getting people to understand that that community is all around them. Um, but I think that there are certainly things that we could do that would help promote that allyship piece with them and kind of help them understand that this exhibit is not a negative discussion, it's a positive one. Okay, great. And back. Mm. Um, I'd be happy to lend my voice. <laughs> and I was thinking about when you said, you know, that these traveling exhibits uh, are oftentimes put in places that don't have the resources to host uh, difficult history, and thinking about that, you know, that I am difficult history. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's a great idea that 
so the the question yeah. was um, about kind of reaching out to people who left the state of Indiana for oral histories that might be able to lend their voice to a totally different piece. And the idea that LGBT history is difficult um, is a very kind of, I don't want to say it's an Indiana-centric thing because that's not true, but that it's not existent. It's not a blanket thing that's happening. Um, I think that's a great idea, and I will give you my card afterwards <laughs> so I can put you in touch with the right people. Um, because I think that is a group that should definitely have a voice in their history being taken, and that it's unfortunately a slightly more difficult group to find. Um, so if you have ideas. <laughs> so I think, though, I, I completely agree with the fact that one of the most difficult things was when I had that conversation with that first museum that said, we're not ready for that. Because in my head, the very first thing I did was say, you're not ready for me. And that's, that's hard. So it is very hard to be a member of a community that is seen as difficult in some places. So sort of for me, what I have done is actually, oddly enough, kind of be... I'm, I'm generally not super out there. And not necessarily because I'm in the closet, just because at work, it's not part of my conversation, is that I have a wife. But I have actually started with some of these communities in Indiana, once I'm there for a second or third site visit, mentioning over lunch, like, oh, hey, yeah, my wife and I went on a hike this weekend. It was super fun. Just to kind of, in an attempt to, in my very own tiny little way, getting them to understand that I just, I just want cats and a house and Netflix, and that's really it. I'm no different than the rest of y'all. <laughs> so I've got a kind of follow-up for Dylan. Your ex the exhibitions went to your libraries, and my question is, did they self-select the exhibition? Did you pick it for them? And what was the real response from the librarians and the public? I know what we talked about it's difficult to get responses, but... Right, you know, we reached out to, well, in terms of spacing, um, the, the branches that we thought might be interested or, uh, yeah, it was kind of like a collaborative decision-making process, but across the board there was interest in buy-in buy from fellow library leaders in a way that uh, I was proud and excited about. And um, at the same time of uh, completely uh, those questions uh, that you, you shared, those, ex those experiences you shared, that, that resonates in so many different ways in a public library sphere, but the air is, is charged in a way that we're used to as a public library navigating uh, questions about content, whether it's about a book or a DVD in a way where we're fortunate enough to have centralized training about intellectual freedom in a way that provides, I think, like good uh, training, but good uh, backing and a good sense of commonality where Hopefully, you know, everyone is, uh, you know, the, the elements of access and intellectual freedom would be true whether or not you're at a smaller location in a rural community or uh, in the heart of Kansas City. Great. Take another couple of questions. Yep, in the back. How did the Kansas City project come together, Taylor, and how was it managed? Uh, so it really came together through, it was sort of a combination of sort of a meeting of the minds between um, Dr. Chris Cantwell, who was 
the uh, head of the public history emphasis program that I graduated from uh, at UMKC, and Stuart Hines, who, uh, who founded Glamour and who is the director of special collections at UMKC. And so the, the project was a real world learning experience for public history students. Uh, and it was also a sort of what you might think of as a force multiplier for Glamma. It was a, you know, so we had resources and they had resources and we were able to use our own sort of unique resources to, uh, to tell a bigger story and to get these amazing collections that Glamma has out in the world. Um, and there's also another figure in here who I haven't mentioned, a uh, former UMKC grad student named Kevin Charlau, who wrote a piece, an article that was published in the Missouri Historical Review in 2015, I think. Um, I think it was awarded their article of the year, but don't quote me on that. Uh, and th he was really the first person to publish a piece unpacking this NACO story. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it was a kind of a cascading domino effect, but it really started with uh, our project, started with Dr. Cantwell and Dr. Hines. So if you haven't filled out your evaluations, had, please do. We had one more question. Oh, no, no, I'm going to take it. Right. We've got one more question, but I'm just telling people, giving them time. There was another question? That was more commentary. Go for Some it. Some of us prefer to be difficult history. <laughs> Some of us do prefer to be difficult history. And one element of the NPS resource study was that they really, they addressed respectability politics and non-respectability politics that had driven the LGBT community for so long until the marriage thing was the issue that was taken on, as opposed to equal rights. And, and so, as an outsider community, it sounds like in Kansas City with the drag queens, there may have been some, some good outsider material, and there's a, it's important to tell outsider stories. Importance of tale, telling outsider stories. We want to get that on tape. And one more. I just wanted to add one resource. Um, AAM, American Alliance Museums, a couple of years ago, one of their affinity groups, the LGBTQ Alliance, published um, well, welcoming guidelines, LGBTQ welcoming guidelines. Some of you may know of them. Um, I think you go online. Yeah. Um, but they're a great resource for some of the things that you're talking about is how you go about addressing some of these issues with people who may be with us or may not be with us. Um, and also, more importantly, um, some of my colleagues have said, you know, we scribbled out LGBTQ on any of those pages in that document and put in Latino, African American, mm -hmm. senior, people with disabilities. Some of the rules apply, right? So it's um, a very universal kind of document that I'm very proud that it's um, sort of launched with us. So I just want to get that on tape. So uh, make sure that if you're not familiar with AAM's welcoming guidelines. LGBTQ welcoming guidelines. LGBTQ welcoming guidelines that you can check that and you can find that online. Okay. Well, thank you all for coming.